HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. In these uncertain and stressful times, our whole team at HRN is carrying on to bring you the food podcast content you know and love. Yes, a lot of our coverage will now focus on how the coronavirus is going to affect our food system. It's undeniable that things are going to look a lot different on the other side of this. And HRN will be there every step of the way, bringing you conversations with those most significantly impacted and the people working hard to help others through the crisis. You can keep up with the latest at heritageradionetwork.org slash COVID-19. But we also want to try to maintain some sense of normalcy. So this week, we're going to explore a handful of so-called happy accidents, unexpected serendipitous moments that led to delightful and impactful outcomes. We'll dive into how these sorts of happenstance occurrences have shaped the food world, leading to the discoveries of new foods, new ways of cooking, and new careers. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. First up, McGill Webb brings us a story about a category of spontaneously fermented beer called Lambics. Lambic itself is a really, really old style of beer. It's basically, people think it's what beer probably was before Pasteur discovered yeast. This is B.R. Rolla from Shelton Brothers, a beer importer based in Massachusetts. She manages the sales of their New York City, French, and Canadian breweries. For Lambic, what happens is um, it's a blend of malted barley as well as unmalted wheat. Once that's mashed and then boiled, it's pumped up from the kettle into a cool ship. And it's this big, enormous vessel, usually made out of copper. Traditionally, now they also have them in stainless steel. Basically, it covers the floor of an attic, at Cantillon specifically. It's very, very shallow. The, the wort is pumped up to maybe a depth of six to eight inches or so. The louvers are opened up in the ceiling of the attic, and they just allow the, the beer to cool in the cool ship overnight. And that also gets inoculated by wild yeasts and bacteria that are in the air. BR further informed me that to be a traditional Lambic beer, they must be brewed around the Brussels region, specifically in the Seine Valley. They find that the microflora there is what gives Lambic its character. And so the Seine Valley has just 
the right type of microflora. Similar as, you know, in, in France, certain cheeses, you know, Roquefort, you can only get that type of, of the penicillin bacteria in that part. You know, that's how it first originated. You know, you certainly can culture it now, but that's how it started out. So for Lambic, it's a very similar thing where just everything came together right. Lambic beers require such specific conditions to ferment that brewers have to be aware of what changes to their environment may have an effect. BR shared a story about how one Lambic brewer's well-intentioned renovation nearly put him out of business. The Cantillon Brewery started in 1900, and the building, it's an older building. The roof, it was, I think this was in the 80s, they needed to replace the roof. So they had replaced the roof, and when they brewed their next batch of beer after the roof replacement, um, the fermentation didn't take hold. You know, they put it up, they pumped it up overnight. Nothing really happened. And they couldn't figure it out. They didn't know what it was. And finally, someone realized that that they had changed the roof. The only thing that they had differently was the fact that there was a new roof. So they tracked down the contractor who had luckily just dumped the the roof tiles, which are, you know, the old clay roof tiles that you'll see in a lot of uh, European buildings, um, had dumped them in a junkyard. And so they were able to recuperate some of these, some of these old tiles and they placed them strategically around the brewery. And the next batch that they brewed, the fermentation started. So they realized that because they have this old building and all these yeasts and bacteria have really made themselves at home there, that they don't want to change anything. So if you go into the brewery, they bill it as a, um, a living museum. It's still a working museum. So they have vessels from the 1900s, early 1900s. After learning this, it is no surprise that what these old breweries are practicing would be unheard of for modern brewers. The beers are matured and conditioned in old wooden barrels. Uh, most of them previously had been used in winemaking, uh, generally from France, some from Spain. But everything else in the brewery, is there's cobwebs, you know, it helps keep down the fly population. But there's dust, there's dirt. I mean, it it's, would be horrifying to any modern brewer in terms of the state of sanitation because there basically is no sanitation because they just, everything is, it's in the air and they just, they want to make the yeast as happy as possible. They want to make all their microorganisms as happy as possible. Um, and that's just how it came about is that all the stuff is in the air and they're not going to change it. The stringent requirements for spontaneous fermentation make Lambic beers truly unique. To learn more about Lambic beers, be sure to check out the episode where science and art meet, Lambics for NYC Beer Week, on Beer Sessions Radio. Next, we switch from very old food technology to a much newer one. Can you imagine modern life without microwaves? This now ubiquitous kitchen appliance was discovered somewhat by a fluke. Danya Abdelhamid has the story. Just about every home kitchen has a microwave in it. It might be tucked in a corner nook on the countertop or delicately perched atop the fridge. Maybe it's mounted right above the oven. Regardless of where it is, it's always there, expeditiously heating up our leftovers to the optimal temperature, zapping our food to cooked perfection, or defrosting frozen parcels of food. Microwaves are probably one of the most calculated, controllable kitchen gadgets out there. But their discovery and eventual commercialization wasn't as clear cut. Microwaves were developed largely by accident. It was a perfect combination of serendipity, timing, and curiosity. 
The story goes that in the late 40s, an electrical engineer at Raytheon Manufacturing named Perry Spencer was testing a magnetron, or a small tube device that was used for radar detection during World War II. He had a chocolate bar in his pocket and noticed that the bar melted during the test. Perplexed, Spencer got some popcorn kernels and put those near the magnetron. They popped. So he kept experimenting. With the help of his colleagues, he explored the magnetron as a tool for cooking and eventually filed a few patents on the subject. The first commercial microwaves were bulky, large, and expensive. They were targeted at restaurants and airlines, mostly. It actually wasn't until the late 60s that compact countertop microwaves, much like the ones that we see today, became readily available. And that's when microwave cooking really took off. It was the era of TV dinners and specially designed microwave-safe cookware, an era where convenience was prioritized above all else. In the 70s, roughly 10% of American homes had a microwave. By 1986, that number would more than double. And as microwaves took off, so did microwave cookbooks. These cooking manuals provided new microwave owners with recipes and techniques to turn their radiation-producing cubes into a robust, versatile cooking tool. Fast forward to the present, and the microwave cookbooks of yesteryear sit discarded on thrift store shelves. But the craft of microwave cooking hasn't altogether disappeared. It's thriving, but now it's on our phones and computer screens instead of in print. Something like 90% of American homes have a microwave. And just like in the 80s, it's not difficult to find kitchenware made specifically for microwave cooking. But while the tools of microwave cooking probably haven't changed much, the persona of the microwave home cook has. Today's microwave cooks are likely millennials or Gen Zers, and they're probably living in a college dorm. They're not reading microwave cookbooks, but instead they're watching short, made-for-social microwave cooking tutorials. Watch one of these tutorials and you'll notice that it really isn't all that different from the microwave cookbooks of the 80s. Sure, the medium is different, but there's still this sense of a bigger mission, a desire to push the microwave to its upper limit, to explore all the different ways that we can cook our food using microwaves and develop new microwave-only recipes. It's been over 70 years since the microwave made its accidental debut. And still, after all this time, its popularity hasn't waned. It's an invention and a way of cooking that's found a permanent home in the kitchens of many. We'll be right back with more Meat in 3. This episode of Meat in 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency Tart Cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. 
Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency Tart Cherry at ChooseCherries.com. In our next story, Dylan Hoyer sits down with Souther Teague. In addition to hosting HRN The Speakeasy, Souther owns four New York City bars and is currently writing his third book about bartending and bar culture. Together, they revisit the chance encounter that first landed Souther behind the bar 20 years ago. Before Souther embarked on a career in the world of mixology, he spent his time working in a different area of the restaurant, inside the kitchen. I was a chef for about 12 years, and uh, my last job in kitchen was as, the, as an instructor at the New England Culinary Institute up in Montpelier, Vermont. Um, and I loved the job, I really did, but I hated where I was. Souther decided to move to the closest metropolis as soon as his contract was up. That's what brought him to New York City for the first time in his life. So I came here sight unseen, rented an apartment over the phone. Uh, and when I arrived, I thought, well, I need to get a job in the front of the house just so I can make some fast cash, and then I'll go back to being a chef. Well, I made a map, actually, of restaurants I was going to go apply at to be a server and made the map based on the Zagat guide, you know, which told me like kind of like what sort of place they were, how much money they would generate. So the furthest one away is the first one I was going to go apply at, and I was going to apply my way back home. Luck would have it that a former colleague was managing the first restaurant he walked into. There was no server job available, but there was an open bar position. And I thought, well, I've been making beautiful food and putting it on a plate all my life. I think I can make a beautiful drink and put it in a glass. Why not? What started as a six-month gig became a three-year position at that restaurant and has since turned into a career spanning two decades. But the transition from food to beverages wasn't effortless. Some of the things translated immediately, right? Mise en place, everything in its place, put everything right back where you got it. That way you know where everything is at all times. Um, prepare for service, you know, all those sorts of things. Was it easy, though? No, I didn't. I felt totally, you know, fish out of water. I had to go do a lot of research. I had to dig up books. This is kind of predating, like, the ease of Internet availability. Souther was eager to learn about the ingredients needed to craft the perfect cocktail, but was most interested in the reasons why some concoctions worked better than others. It's when he began to explore the philosophy behind bartending that he tapped into what he had loved most about cooking. There was some hurdles in the beginning, but, you know, I stuck to it, and um, then the chef side of me started coming out in that, in that space. It was a seafood restaurant, and I, was, I went to the chef, and I was like, we have all these lemons, because we're serving seafood, yet at the bar we buy frozen lemon juice to use behind the bar. Is there any chance I can just squeeze lemon juice? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. So I started squeezing fresh juices. That seems like a kind of a first step. Um, I looked at the bottle of Rose's Grenadine that we had on the bar, and nowhere on the bottle did it say the word pomegranate. So I said, can I make my own pomegranate syrup, right? So I made my own grenadine, then I started making my own ginger beer. Like, so I got to stay in the kitchen as much as I could at that job. Looking back, Souther is thankful for the lifelong sense of gratification that resulted from a happy accident. I think that it fills me with a sense, with a sense of, like, the world is still going to offer you things, and if you're willing to take them, you can go down a bunch of paths that you had no expectation of going down. So, you know, it still leaves a sense of adventure to life. You can hear Souther's continued excitement for spirits yourself by listening to his weekly HRN podcast, The Speakeasy. For our final story this week, we dive way back into the HRN archives. Ashley Koziak tells us about the mistake that led to the creation of America's favorite breakfast cereal. K is for Kellogg. Hello, and welcome to The Edible Alphabet. I'm Ashley Koziak, and I'm here to take you through the history of food one letter at a time. 
Today, we'll learn about modern culinary icons John Harvey and Will Keith Kellogg. John Harvey Kellogg, the older of the brothers, was born on February 26, 1852, in Tyrone, Michigan. Kellogg was a Seventh-day Adventist and vegetarian and received his M.D. from Bellevue Hospital Medical College in New York City in 1875. John Harvey gained notoriety as the health director of what became known as the Battle Creek Sanitarium, a location made famous by the 1994 film comedy The Road to Wellville. Kellogg believed that the root of many ailments lied in the bowels and advocated clean living by relying on a diet heavy in whole grains, fruits, nuts, and legumes. While it's one thing to advocate for a diet filled with fresh produce, Kellogg and the sanitarium also became known for the daily yogurt enemas, shock therapy, and Kellogg's crusade for absolute celibacy, despite his 40-year, apparently unconsummated marriage. Kellogg was always seeking ways to incorporate more whole grains into the diets of sanitarium patients. One such innovation was a healthy treat made up of baked oats and cornmeal, ground into small, bite-sized bits. He later named his invention granola. John Harvey Kellogg and his brother, W.K. Kellogg, who was the sanitarium's bookkeeper, are best known for their invention of breakfast cereal, specifically cornflakes. To create their various grain-based foods, the Kellogg brothers forced dough through large rollers, creating massive sheets, which they would then bake. One day, W.K. accidentally left boiled wheat sitting out, and it went stale. Strapped for cash, the brothers decided to send the stale wheat berries through the rollers regardless and got flakes instead of sheets. The flaked cereal, called Granos, was a hit with sanitarium patients. By the early 20th century, John Harvey and W.K. feuded over the recipe and the best way to market and sell their new cereal. W.K., who was not as abstemious as his brother, added sugar to his corn recipe to create Kellogg's Corn Flakes, which he sold from his Battle Creek Toasted Corn Flake Company. The brothers sold competing cereals, sued each other, and became estranged for the rest of their lives. While the health and sanitarium business floundered, W.K.'s new cereal company eventually became a global powerhouse. From humble beginnings and healthy eating habits, Kellogg's cereals are now on grocery store shelves across the world. To hear more, check out The Edible Alphabet on Heritage Radio Network. Special thanks this week to McGill Webb, Danya Abelhamid, Ruby Walsh, Ashley Koziak, and Jimmy Carbone. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Brickmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or just want to say hello, you can write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. 
And do be sure to keep up with our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org slash COVID-19. 